Well, good morning to all of you. Um, We are delighted that you've chosen to worship with us today. I am Pastor Tim, the executive pastor, and I am preaching because Pastor John is moving his office. We have been planning for months. We knew the day would come when we would move our offices and we're excited about that, and I was able to prepare in advance so that when we moved our offices, I would have these sermons prepared, and then Pastor John would be able to... um, move his office. So I'm really excited to be here. I've been thinking about these sermons for quite a few months now. We're calling the, the sermon series, it's going to be four messages. I'm preaching three of them, and, and Pastor Stephen will preach one. We're calling the sermon series American Christianity. I'd like to introduce you to Eddie the Evangelist. I don't know if you saw Eddie the Evangelist, but he was down on the corner of uh, Lover's Lane and Mineral King, you know, a few weeks back. And I pulled up and asked him if I could take a picture, only because I thought it was a great, a great way to start a series called American Christianity. I just thought it was a great picture. And I, I asked him, I said, can I take a picture of you? And he said, yeah, are you going to put it on Facebook? <laughs> I said, no. Uh, I said, actually, I'm doing a sermon series, and I was going to use it to start the sermon series. And he said, well, that'll be great. And, um, but I was having a discussion with my wife, which I thought, I, I thought it was interesting that here is Eddie with, are you ready for Jesus Christ? And then, I don't know if you see it or not, but in his right hand, he has a Bible and an American flag. He's holding them both together. And I thought that was just a, a, a little bit interesting. And I was talking to my wife about it. And I said, I, I wonder why the, the Bible and the American flag, and I, you know, he could be it could be someone that was in the war and he's, you know, holding the flag up for that reason. I mean, you know, there's a lot of reasons. My wife said something that was interesting. Said, Tim, maybe he's holding up the American flag because he's saying that, that America needs Jesus. And I thought, oh, that's, that's an interesting um, view as well. Um, but because of having the American flag and showing you this picture, I feel like I need to make a couple of clarifying statements. I want you to know what this sermon series is not, and I want you to know what what it is intended to do. What this sermon series is not, is it's not a a series of messages um, intended to put down America. (laughs) That's not my intention at all. I think we live in one of the greatest countries in the world. Personally, I'm proud to be an American, and I'm thankful for the freedoms we have and for all the men and women who have fought Uh, to give us those freedoms. If I was called to go to war, they wouldn't want me now, Um, but if I was called to go to war to protect the freedoms we have, I would would gladly do that. Um, I just feel like I needed to say that because of the political nature of our country right now. What I really want you to catch is what this sermon series is intended for, and it is intended to help us to see that we are all affected by the culture that we live in. We live in a free country, and that country, that freedom, we are affected by the culture. And the Bible encourages us to be very careful with that. Romans 12.2 says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. We need to be careful that the culture doesn't sneak in and change um, the truths of the Scriptures. Ephesians 2.1 and 2, which is speaking to us as we have given our life to Christ about a day About a day before we knew the Lord, it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. 
The point being is that the culture can affect us and we, ha- we need to be on guard against the culture. We, we should understand that we are in a war. We are in a war against a very evil and deceptive enemy that would like nothing more than to deceive us by using whatever he could use, the culture of the day, to draw us away from the truths of the Scriptures. And because we live in a free country, I would suggest that our freedom um, at least has the ability to create some things that the evil one can use against us. We're going to talk about four different um, things each week. The first one um, is I would suggest that because we live in a free country that allows us to believe whatever we want to believe, we have almost eliminated a standard of truth. People construct or reason what their own truth is. What's right for me may not be right for you, but it's right for me. And I think that's dangerous, and we're going to talk about that here in just a little bit. The second thing is that in our country, I think, at least for some, certainly not for all, we have eliminated the idea of working hard. People seem to feel entitled to everything. They want everything quick and easy. And when you think you are entitled to something, um, the idea of gratefulness is lost. We've become a very ungrateful nation, I would suggest, and we need to be careful not to have that sneak in to the church and to us as believers. I I opened a door for someone the other day, and they walked through. They they didn't even recognize that I was there. I mean, there used to be, when you do something for someone, they'd say thank you. But see, we live in kind of a rude culture, and I think we need to be careful with that. The third thing is that I think in our in our free country, and by the way, I don't think it's just in America, but we're Americans, so I'm speaking to us in America. I'm sure this is true in some other countries as well. But we have, we have almost eliminated the concept of love. We talk a lot about love, but not biblical love. Love has been relegated to a simple emotion that comes and goes. We fall in and out of it. The idea of commitment has been removed from it. It has also become something that says, that this type of love should tolerate everything, whether right or wrong, unless, of course, that love infringes on my love, at which point tolerance is shoved aside. That's an interesting topic that Pastor Stephen will deal with. And the fourth one is that in our country, we have almost completely eliminated, from my perspective, I offer it to you to think about, the idea of team and working together towards a common cause. We've become a nation that is very quick to criticize other people. We're outspoken. We are losing respect for order and authority. We are a nation full of lone rangers who have lost the concept of family, team, organization, and church. We answer to no one but number one. And so we're going to talk about that. And out of those issues, I have come up with four four traits of American Christianity, and these are the four different sermons. American Christianity says that you can reason your way into heaven. We're going to talk about that today. Next week, American Christianity says that you are saved by praying a prayer, and a prayer only. That's all there is to it. That's an interesting topic which we'll talk about next week. American Christianity says that love is an emotion that tolerates all. And then finally, the fourth message is 
will be on the fact that American Christianity teaches that um, it's a personal faith that doesn't need others. So we're going to talk about those issues. Now, I want you to remember the clarifying statements I just made. And, and think of that as I, as I change this slide right now, because what I want you to understand is that there is no American in Christianity. What I mean by that is that we can never allow the culture or the world to affect the truths of the Scriptures. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to start by reading Matthew 7, 21 to 23. I'd ask you to turn there. This will be the foundational text for the series. I want you to know that this may be one of the scariest sections of Scriptures in the Bible. It is a theological minefield. Scares me to death to preach on it. These three passages shoot at some of the greatest debates or maybe dilemmas in Christianity. Who is really saved? How is one saved? Can someone lose their salvation? After the first message, I want to make this clear that you hear this. I do not believe you can lose your salvation. We'll talk about that next week, but I want to make that clear. How do you, these are just things that come up from this passage. How do you know if someone is saved or not? How do you know if you are saved? What I'm saying is, is as we read this passage, it, it can create doubt, um, debate, dilemma, um, and it abounds in this text, and this text is right in the middle of it. So let's read the passage together, and then we'll talk about it. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. <clears throat> a few weeks back, it was actually the 4th of July weekend, I preached and I told you a story um, I told you about a, a situation with my wife and I. Margie had, had, um, had hurt her hip. She was walking through the house one day and her hip just gave way or her, somewhere in her pelvic area and she couldn't hardly walk at all. We ended up, it was suggested by our oncologist that we go see an orthopedic surgeon. So we went up to Sierra, we went up to Sierra Pacific um, in Fresno. Uh, we met with Dr. Taylor, a great guy. I told you this story a few weeks back if you were here. And they did some x-rays and, and um, we ultimately ended up sitting down with Dr. Taylor and Dr. Taylor started to tell us, you know, um, treatment options. And as, she, as he shared those treatment options, my wife Margie shared with him that she has, that her cancer has got into both lungs and so Ultimately, it's terminal. And so she was trying to help him to see that not all, not, not, some of those treatments were not realistic for us. And uh, Dr. Taylor, he got very quiet, and I was really proud of Margie. I, I said this a few weeks ago where she was sharing her faith with Dr. Taylor and the fact that it was, you know, she was going to be okay. She knows the Lord. I was really proud of her. And Dr. Taylor said, um, you know, Margie, you're very courageous. And that's what I shared with you a few weeks back. But what I didn't share with you was what happened after that. And 
what happened after that was, you know, we left the doctor's office, and by the way, Margie's hip is way better, and it's healed well, and she's able to move around much better. But we got out into the car, and my wife is not a crier. In, in the 42 years we've been married, I, I've not seen her cry a lot. Um, but I got into the car, you know, we, she was, you know, the, took the wheelchair, she got into the car, I put the wheelchair away, I came around and sat down in the car, and you know how you can sense something isn't quite right? I mean, I felt it before I actually really realized something was going on, and I looked at my wife, and she had tears welling up in her eyes. And I said, you know, what's going on? And she made a reference to this very passage that we read here, this Matthew 7, 21 to 23. And she said to me, Tim, you know that passage where people come up before the Lord and He says, away from me, you evildoer, I never knew you? I said, yes. She said, what if I'm one of those people? Man, I just wanted to cry right there. It was just very hard to hear that. What would you have said to her? After reading this passage this morning, what would you have said to her? I know what some would say. Some would probably say, oh, you can't be one of those people because we always want to kind of soft, you know, we want to make people feel better. I'm sure some would say, oh, Margie, you can't be one of those people because you're so nice. Or they might have, they might have thought or they might have said, oh, but Margie, you're the wife of a pastor. I mean, I don't know what they would have said, but they would have tried to reason with her. I'm going to tell you what I said to her, but not until at the end of the message. I just want you to think about that um, and have that kind of set you up to hear the Scriptures this morning. As I said, these Scriptures are a theological minefield, and I'm going to do the best I can to walk us through them. I want to start by sharing with you three general observations. They're just very general observations about this passage, these three verses. What is going on here is something that will take place in the future. It has not taken place yet. Jesus says, many on that day. It's a reference to the, I believe, a, a reference to a day that will come in the future. Some would call it judgment day. There is a day when all will stand before the Lord Jesus individually and answer to Him. We are all passing through the world in the direction of the final judgment. And we will all stand before Him. Whether someone claims to know the Lord or not, all men, all Men and women will stand before him. Matthew 25, 31 to 33 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He would put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So this, this is a picture of a day to come. The second general observation is that we, this, this brings into, into focus a specific group of people. Notice it says, many will say to me on that day. It doesn't say all will say, although all will come before him. Um, these folks are standing before him, and I think it's, and I think this will be pointed out a little bit more in a little bit, but I think we might realize that these people are church people, or we might call them religious people. I'm using kind of terminology that we might understand. 
These are people like you and me who claim to have some kind of a relationship with God. They are likely, I would offer maybe even respected religious people. It is clear that some of these folks possibly could be sitting in this room this morning. Notice what they claim. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? See, that's, that's religious language. That's like church language to help us to understand. These are things that were done in the confines of, of uh, religious people. So there's, there's a specific group that's being mentioned here. And if you pay attention, there are two groups of people mentioned here. I think, I think the focus is on one group primarily, but I really do think you can see two groups. There are those who do the will of the Father in heaven and using kind of modern day language, uh, we might call them the righteous, we might call them believers, saved, that would be the kind of language we might use. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, verse 21 says, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So those folks are in, in focus, but really the, the thrust of the message is the second group that's there, and it's those that are called evildoers. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you, away from me, you evildoers. And again, using common language, this might, that we would understand these would be like the lost, unbelievers, um, unsaved, um, some might call them the wicked, um, but there's two groups of people. So those are just some general observations about the passage. And what I'd like to do is take the next few moments to share with you four observations about these people, primarily the evildoers. Um, and in those four observations, though, I want to point out, I think it's interesting that the first three observations, uh, I think, apply to both groups, both the evildoers and, the, and those who, who uh, do the will of the Father is in heaven. I think it is only the fourth point that only applies to the evildoers and is really where they go way wrong. So let me share those with you and, and uh, let's see where we end up. The first observation is that they call on the name of the Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord. So they use the name of the Lord. It's not like these folks come up before Jesus and they go, hey dude, hey bro. Or it's not like they're standing before Jesus and going, oh, finally, I get to meet the big man in the sky. See, that's kind of impersonal language that we hear. That's not what's being used here. They are not using impersonal language. They're using a personal name for Jesus, and they call him Lord. And I would suggest that these are God-believing people who have some recognition of who Jesus is. Notice that they even say they did things in Jesus' name. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? So they, they call on the name of the Lord, if you will. And, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. People who know the Lord need to call on the name of the Lord, don't they? Romans, I mean, those who do the will of the Father in heaven, we have called upon the name of the Lord. Romans 10.9 says that if you would confess with your mouth... Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you would be saved. Verse 13 of Romans chapter 10 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts 2.21, it's throughout Scripture. 
Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. John 1.12, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We must call upon the name of the Lord. That is definitely needs to happen. The second thing that I would offer, and I'm not sure I like my statement exactly, um, but I'm trying to make a point. I, I think you could make the case that these guys recognize that Jesus is God, or at least the Son of God, or at least from God, or someone who certainly has the power to decide their fate in, in eternity. He is certainly someone very special. Notice they say, not only do they say, Lord, it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. They use the name twice. These aren't atheists or people who are hostile to the faith. Using the, the, the name Lord, Lord, twice, some would say is actually a profession of faith. So it's possible that Jesus is saying that someone, that there will be those who will confess Jesus, but who have never entered into a personal relationship with Him. We're going to talk more about that next week, but that's, that's certainly something to consider here. I think it's possible that they could have prayed a prayer to accept Jesus. It's possible. They may have claimed to have given their hearts to Jesus. It's at least possible because they use the word Lord, Lord. I was, I was you know, somebody posted a, um, an interview on Facebook and it caught my eye and so I, I, I watched it and it was an interview with Kathy Lee Gifford and her husband Frank has just died recently and she was talking about Frank and his faith in the Lord and I thought it was interesting. By the way, I'm not saying Frank is an evildoer. I, only the Lord knows these things. But um, Kathy Lee said, he would want you to know that as a young man, he asked Jesus into his heart. And um, I think it's possible that maybe some of these guys had done something like that. I think it's safe to say that they had some right theology. And using the term twice carries with it this idea of enthusiasm. These people really believed they had a case, and I want you to hang on to that. They believed they had a case. They really believed, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this, and didn't we do this, and didn't we do this? In fact, you might even suspect that they believe others would agree with them. They certainly think that Jesus should agree with them. And recognizing that Jesus is God is not a problem. You, you have to recognize who Jesus is to be saved from your sins. Only the perfect Son of God can save, save us from our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Corinthians 15.3 and 4, when I was in youth ministry, we used to call it the football passage. For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And certainly the Bible teaches that Jesus is God, doesn't it? John 1 is one of the most famous places that you can see this. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh. It begins to illuminate it even further as to who the Word is. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, verse 17 says, and it, now it gets very specific. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Word, and Jesus Christ is God. And by the way, knowing this fact should bring enthusiasm. It should excite us to know this. And we need to know, know that Jesus is God. Do you know why? Because if you don't have... If you don't believe that, you're going to have a tough time standing up against a world that doesn't believe that. 2 Timothy 3.12 3, says, In fact, everyone who wants to give, live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You better know who Jesus Christ is, and you better have faith that He died on the cross for your sins, or you'll never be able to stand against the persecution that will come your way. And in fact, if you live your life for Jesus Christ, you will be persecuted, the Scriptures say. One of my favorite passages in Scripture, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. Have you ever felt, have you, do you know what it's like to be an alien and a stranger and what that feels like? That's what believers are in the world. And it says, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that He visits us. You will not do that if you do not believe in who Jesus is and the fact that He died on the cross for you. So that enthusiasm should be a part of the Christian life. The third thing, um, the third observation about this, these people is that they live out their faith publicly. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Prophecy is a public thing. People hear about the prophecies. Uh, you drive demons out of, you don't drive demons out of yourself, you drive it out of other people. It's something that's very public, if you will. Um, I have written in my notes, and it's not quite right, miracles aren't miracles if no one else knows about them. That's not really true. They're still miracles. But the point I'm trying to make is that miracles are, are heard and known about. People see it. It's the miracles of Jesus that happen that draw us to Him. Certainly, even if others didn't see these things that these guys were doing, or these people were doing, they trusted that Jesus is aware of them, or they wouldn't have made their case to Him. See, they are making a case that they have an impressive, um, an impressive record of spirituality. They're saying, hey, look what I've done. At least that's the case they're making. And one quick note I want to say, um, and that's this. Some might say, how could these evildoers do these things if they aren't believers. Matthew 24, 24 says, For false Christs and false prophets will, will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect. Unbelievers, and this says false prophets and false Christs, can do some pretty miraculous things. And by the way, being public with your faith isn't a problem. We are called to be public with our faith. Matthew 5, 14 to 16 says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. 
Instead, they put it on its stand and, give, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And by the way, this is where it starts to go a little haywire with these evildoers because their good deeds they were putting up as focusing on uh, giving attention to them. We are to live our lives publicly and give focus to the Lord. That's why we live our lives out um, um, in public, and that's what we are supposed to do. And finally, the fourth observation, and this is where you see what really goes wrong for these evildoers. Their faith is in their good works. That's where things go haywire. And Jesus says, despite all of that, I will tell them plainly, he says, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. There's a heart issue involved. Something is wrong at the core of their confession. Notice that they don't say anything about what Jesus did on the cross. Notice they don't say anything about, um, you know, giving their lives to Jesus. What do they point out? They point out their works. Notice also that the Lord doesn't deny any of their claims. He doesn't deny that they did those things. The implication is that they did do those things. Notice that their actions are not deemed unrighteous. It's not like the Lord doesn't, it's not like the Lord says their actions were wrong. He simply pronounces the judgment and it makes it clear and we should all know this, that no one can work their way into heaven. How do these people miss this? How do we miss it? I would argue that we do miss it from time to time. I sometimes think we think we're pretty good. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 ought to always be before us. I know many of you have it um, memorized. How do these guys, these evildoers, how are they not aware of this passage? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Clearly, you cannot reason or work your way into heaven. I think it's one of the ultimate deceptions in what I'm calling American Christianity. I think it's something that we are prone to, to fall into that, we're prone to fall into that trap. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, you've probably heard it too. I'm a good person. Compared to who? I mean, compared to who? I'm reading a book right now, and I, the author uses a, a, a term that I just read this a couple of days ago, and the author calls it comparative sin. I've not heard that terminology, although I know what it is. Comparative sin is comparing your sin to someone else's in order to conclude that yours is not as bad. And it goes up, it goes on all the time. A dear friend of mine told me, um, I think it was probably the first funeral I did, he said, Tim, you can't mess up funerals. And I know what he was meaning, and actually I found that to be somewhat true. Um, but there is one thing about funerals that scares me to death, and that is that when you do a funeral, the loved ones of the, of the person that you're doing the funeral for always wants you to assure them that 
that they're in heaven. And as a pastor, you're not God. You don't know these things. And it's a, it's a bit scary. <clears throat> I've heard people ask the question, did they know the Lord? Sometimes there's a pause, and then they say something like this. I think so. I think sometimes we want to reason, you know, people into heaven. And by the way, we, we can't reason people in or out of heaven. That's all between that person and the Lord. But it's a bit scary, and I think we need to think through it. Sometimes I think people actually think, just because I live in America, I'm going to be in heaven. I'm an American. It's a good country. All true. But it doesn't save us. Sometimes I think people think they're going to get into heaven because of their the political party they belong to, or the views they hold. You know, I'm against abortion. <laughs> I don't drink or smoke. I don't do drugs. I go to church. I tithe, or at least I tell people I do. I don't cuss. I'm not a serial killer. I don't belong to ISIS. See, if you start comparing yourself to other people, you can make yourself look pretty good. But the Bible teaches that before a holy God, we are all sinners. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all of our best works, the best of all the works we have are as filthy rags before a righteous God. 1 Corinthians 3.18 says, do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he might become wise. The problem with these evildoers, catch this, was that, they, that their problem was that they, they placed their, work, their faith in their works, not in Jesus Christ. And a true believer would never do that because a true believer understands what Romans 3.23 says about all of us. We have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. When you read the Beatitudes, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? It says, blessed are those who mourn. These, these are, it, the reason they are blessed is because they are aware of their sin. It is always before us. And we know that it's only through Jesus Christ that we can be forgiven. And that's why Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if you would confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you are believed and justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So ultimately, the difference between the evildoer and those who do the will of the Father in heaven is the evildoer gets their faith in their works, and the, the one who does the will of the Father in heaven understands that they are a sinner that can only be saved by Jesus Christ himself and his death on the cross, and they are aware of their sin. What would you have told Margie? I want you to know as a pastor, it's hard for me. I, I, maybe it's not a pastor, maybe it's just me. But it's very hard for me when someone's sharing to sit and listen. I want to jump in. But I sat and I listened. And then when I felt like Margie had said all that she needed to say, I wrote down what I said because I knew this message was coming. To the best of my ability, I wrote down what I said. What I told Margie that day sitting in a parking lot of Sierra Pacific Orthopedic um, inside our car was I said, Margie, I think this is nothing but a vicious attack from the evil one, and I hate him. I hate that this is happening to you right now. 
He is trying to make you doubt your salvation. And I said, it is this thought that you need to take captive in obedience to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says that. And then I began to remind her. I said, Margie, I was with you when you gave your life to the Lord. We were together. It was on a September 1st, the opening day of dove season. We were sitting on a couch. Pastor Vern was with us, and he led us to the Lord that evening. And we confessed our sins and gave our lives to Jesus. And I reminded Margie of that. I said, I have watched you all these years, and I have seen the changes of someone who has received the Holy Spirit. I've watched you labor to live your life for Jesus. I said, just now, Margie, you were witnessing to Dr. Taylor. (laughs) I mean, that was incredible. I said, Margie, I've been studying this passage that she brought up, you know, the Matthew 7, 21 to 23, when she, I said, when she said, what if I'm one of those evildoers? I said, I've been studying that passage. I said, my next sermon's going to be on that passage. You're hearing it this morning. I said, I know about those people that the Lord calls evildoers, at least to the best of my ability that I can know about them as I study the scriptures. I said, they were condemned because they were making their case before the Lord on their good works. It doesn't appear to me that they're even aware of their sin. I said, Margie, you're aware of your sin. That's why you're struggling right now. You know that you can't earn your way into heaven. And I said, the fact that you are questioning yourself even now tells me that you aren't one of those evildoers. At least to the best of my ability, that's what I would say. I think only a true believer would struggle like you are right now, at least from time to time. And then I sat quietly for a minute because I was all of a sudden nervous. I, I, I didn't want to violate the principle that I just got done teaching you about this morning. I have no ability to reason my wife into heaven nor to reason her out of heaven. Only God, only God knows if someone is saved or not. It's between that person and the Lord. So with that, I thought for a moment. And I said, Margie, if you think there's something between you and wrong between you and the Lord, then why not just pray? I mean, ask him to come into your life now again. <laughs> I mean, what harm would it do? Confess your sins to him. And then I sat quiet for a bit. She sat quiet. And then I said, can I pray for us? And we prayed and the attack was over and we went to lunch. Next week, we're going to talk about the prayer, praying a prayer. I want you to know that this sermon series, in some ways I'm very excited to have the opportunity to preach it. In some ways it scares me to death because it it kind of reminds me of like counseling a couple in conflict. You can only talk to one person at a time. You know, you're talking to the one and you want to be talking to the other as well. You, you're talking to one and you can see the other one going, you know, and you want to be able to talk to both, but you can't talk to both of them. So you can only do one thing at a time. Next week, we're going to talk about the prayer. I've opened up a lot of cans this morning, and I really hope you'll be back next week. 
so that we can continue to explore this together. Ultimately, why don't you stand? Ultimately, we are called to live our lives for Jesus, and I want to encourage you to do just that. Can I pray for you, please? Father, we're grateful for this day, for the opportunity to be in this place, and Lord, um, I've studied the Scriptures, Father, for the better part of my adult life, and I still feel so inept. Your Word is so magnificent. And even this morning, Lord, I would pray those things that were preached, that were true and right, that they would be embossed on our heart. And if there is anything that has led us astray that is not from you, I pray that that would be forgiven. And ultimately, I pray, Lord, that would be forgotten. And ultimately, I pray, Lord, you would help us to go from this place and to live our lives for you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all.